Uh, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. Uh, Happy New Year. I always think of how much can happen in a year. If you told me a year ago today that today we'd have a baby. If you told me at the beginning of 2019, at the end of this year, you're going to be in Sister Park, Illinois, with the best people in the world. I would have said, where's that? If you told me at the beginning of 2017, at the end of this year, you're going to be married to Carrie, I would have said, who's Carrie? Because I didn't know her yet. We met and got married in a calendar year. Uh, And many other years in my life where I can think of things like that. And I'm sure if you think about your own life, it's probably pretty similar where a lot can happen in a year. And for this year, I'm praying for you and for this church. And one thing we'll talk about momentarily that I'm especially praying for for this year, for this church, is mission. And when I say mission, I mean gospel-focused ministry, not just on Sunday mornings, but as a way of life, doing missional living as a church. And again, I'll talk more about that today and throughout the year, uh, but I'm excited about that. Uh, A second goal I have this year that I've had before as a goal, and I still haven't achieved, I don't want to use COVID as an excuse, but it hasn't helped, Uh, I I would like to visit with every family in the church this year, and I just hope everyone will be receptive to that, and uh, I think it's just so important to have those relationships, and uh, again, I appreciate everyone here, and Carrie and I appreciate being here and the people here, Um, but John chapter 15 is where we'll be. Uh, Before I read the passage I want to just talk for another couple of moments about where I want us to go the first part of this year leading up to Easter. And as always, that's Lord willing because we're not ultimately in control of our own lives and plans. The resurrection is at the beginning of John chapter 20, and Lord willing, I'd like to be there on Easter, which would hopefully have us finishing up this gospel by the end of May. And again, One thing I really want to focus on this year is mission, and I feel like this passage this morning providentially fits in with that theme. Uh, Being disciples who make disciples, disciples, making Jesus known, sharing the good news. The plan is next month to actually bring in a man who's going to do a training seminar for anybody who wants to come on the subject of evangelism. And I think that's going to be so enriching for the church and so helpful. Uh, We've been actually planning this for over a year. Uh, But definitely excited for that. And excited to be resuming in the Gospel of John this morning. With that, let's look at our passage. The end of chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, we thank you for this new year, Lord. And again, we just, we pray for this church. 
We pray for the church as a body of believers, Lord, that this year we would grow as a church, grow as people. And we pray for ourselves individually, Lord, that we would love you more, grow in our faith, grow in our prayerfulness. Lord, walk with you more nearly. Lord, we pray for our time in your word this morning. Such an important section, Lord, and we pray that we be pointed to truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I begin with a theological trivia question. Now just think about the answer to this. We'll get to it in a bit. Who sends the Holy Spirit? Throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen repeated references to Jesus being sent by the Father. So if the Father sends the Son, who sends the Spirit? And again, we'll get to that question in our passage. When we were in John chapters 14 and the first part of 15 last summer... I mentioned this several times, but I think it again bears repeating that we're in a section of this gospel that's on the eve of the crucifixion. And that matters because, as I've already alluded to, Jesus is preparing his disciples and ultimately the church for how to do ministry and advance the mission of Christ after he's gone. And it will be very relevant relevant this week and in passages in the coming weeks. And with that, let's talk about our passage. And we're going to make three points this morning. Witnesses to Jesus. We'll see the witness of the Spirit, the witness of the disciples, and the witness of the church. Or your witness and my witness. We begin with the witness of the Spirit. Looking at the first verse in our passage Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Starts out pretty simple. Jesus says, when the Helper comes. We've seen that word before in this gospel. Helper comes from the Greek word paraclete, and it's found four times in the gospel of John, all four in this farewell speech that we're in right now. This is the third of the four references. And I've mentioned before that paraclete gets translated several different ways depending on which Bible translation you're reading. I read from the ESV, which says helper. Also, it gets translated sometimes as advocate, counselor, comforter, friend. And what that shows us is that the word paraclete is such a broad idea that it's difficult to condense down into one simple word. Because the Holy Spirit is all of those things. In today's section, Jesus says that the helper will bear witness about him. Jesus is highlighting that the Holy Spirit teaches about Jesus, bears witness to Jesus, and testifies to Jesus. Jesus says, Whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, that is quite the theological statement that Jesus has made. And I debated sharing this or not, but 
I spent more time reading on this one verse than I think I've ever spent on one single verse for any sermon. Because it's complicated. If you really look at what it's saying, it's a difficult verse. Whom I will send to you, but then he adds, from the Father. And it leads to the trivia question that I began with. Who sends the Spirit? Now, perhaps you've never thought about that question before. To approach that question, I need to take a moment to give a brief history lesson. Because the answer to that question was part of a major theological debate almost a thousand years ago. In 1054, you did not have Bible churches or independent churches or non-denominational churches or even apostolic churches. Protestantism itself was almost 500 years away. Virtually all of Christendom fell into one of two camps, East and West. You had the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East, and you had the Roman Catholic Church or the Latin Church in the West. There were some outliers, but those two were, again, the biggest, most influential. They were like the Coke and Pepsi of the church. The East and West churches had open communion with each other. But all of that changed in 1054 when they split in a rift that has never fully been repaired. There were several reasons why this happened, but one of the major reasons, and one that's related to our passage today, was the question of who sent the Spirit. The Eastern Church believed that God sends the Son and God sends the Spirit. The Catholic view, which is also essentially the universal view within Protestantism, is that God sends the Son, but the Father and the Son send the Spirit. One of the verses that was part of the debate is this verse right here. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. And another key verse in the discussion is in the following chapter, John 16, verse 7, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I affirm the view that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, some of you might be asking, who cares? Most importantly, because we're talking about what the Bible teaches. These complicated theological issues might seem boring or abstract or meant for professional theologians. But the Trinity is a significant part of what makes Christianity, Christianity. It's part of what makes Christianity unique and distinct from every other religion. And the reason why this particular issue matters, the reason why it matters that the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, and not just from the Father, is that if the Spirit comes only from the Father, then it leads to the possible conclusion that the Father can be accessed via the Spirit apart from the Son. I'll say that again. If somebody believes that the Spirit is exclusively from the Father, then they can also believe that they can have the Spirit without having Jesus, which is not true. If the Spirit is only from God, then why do you need Jesus? 
I'm not saying that the Eastern Orthodox Church believes that, by the way. What I am saying is that it is a possible conclusion of that theological assumption. If Christ is in heaven, ruling and reigning with God, and the Spirit is empowering and edifying the church, then how do the Son and the Spirit relate to each other? It's that the Father, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, the Father and the Son are both active in the ministry, I'm sorry, the Father and the Spirit are both active in the ministry of the Son. The Father sends the Son, but the Spirit was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. I don't have a slide for this, but at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, when he came up out of the water, this is referring to the baptism of Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity working together during the ministry of Jesus. And all three persons are at work today in the church. It's not that Jesus came, had a three-year ministry, and then clocked out. And it's, the, it's not a relay race, and Jesus handed off the baton. The Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, because the Father and the Son are ruling and reigning. Now, there's much, much more that can be said on that subject, but we must press on. At the end of verse 26, after Jesus has talked of sending the Spirit, he says that the Spirit will bear witness about him. Now, what does that mean exactly? When we talk here of bearing witness, it's a legal term. Think of it as being like a sworn witness in a courtroom setting. And it's actually a term that's used frequently in the Gospel of John. I think it's helpful to quickly survey some of the examples because we see Jesus talk of several different witnesses throughout this book. In the opening section of John's Gospel, it talks of John the Baptist as one who has come in order to bear witness to Jesus. John chapter 1 Verses 7 and 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist's purpose is simply to be one who bears witness to Jesus. Jesus will talk in chapter 5 of the scriptures bearing witness to himself. Verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John chapter 8 verse 18. Jesus says that he and the Father both bear witness to who he is. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The work that Jesus does bears witness to who he is. The signs he does, the perfect life he lives, the perfect relationship with the Father, all of that bears witness to Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 25. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. 
All of those things bear witness to Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is that after he's gone, the Spirit will be the one that bears witness to him. The Dutch theologian Hermann Ritterboss talked of how the Spirit would be a permanent witness who would forever keep the cause of Christ alive. And how would he do that? Through a second witness, the disciples. And that brings us to our second point, verse 27. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit will be sent to the disciples to bear witness in them and through them. The Spirit will internally witness and confirm to the disciples the reality of who Christ is and the truth of the gospel. But the Spirit will also witness through them and cooperating with the disciples in the spreading of the good news of the gospel. And that happens in a couple of different ways. Speaking of Christ's disciples, it happens through the work that they did in the early church, in going out into the world to proclaim the gospel. It is also true in the sense that the disciples bear witness through the scriptures themselves. The book we're studying, the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus. The disciples had a specific role in the early church. The New Testament was written in the generations after Christ, all of it probably written within 50, 60, 70 years, depending on how long John lived, but in close proximity, in less time than some of your lifetimes. The New Testament written by the disciples and their close associates witnessing to Christ in the early church. So the disciples have the spirit bearing witness in them and they are enabled to bear witness because of that to Christ in the world. And that matters because it is by the spirit that the ministry of the disciples could succeed. The Spirit is involved in the church, which is profound when you really think about it. I want to borrow an idea I heard from a sermon from Tim Keller, and I'll present this idea by asking another question. But why did Christianity ever get off the ground? Now, that question might be hard for us to appreciate, because we live in a country and a society that has been greatly shaped by Christianity and the Christian worldview, so much so that it's easy to take for granted. But that was not the case in the first century. Back in the first century, why did it happen? Think about it. You have a faith started by a Jewish rabbi who was crucified. He had a band of loyal followers, but they weren't exactly the best and brightest of the community. He didn't recruit the Pharisees and Sadducees. Those men were respected, but he didn't pick them. He picked people who were not particularly well-educated. When you see the disciples interacting in the Gospels, at times they're not particularly faithful or competent. They weren't political figures. It's not like they went and won over the Roman Senate. They weren't military figures or great generals. 
Early Christianity didn't have a conquering army. In fact, they were persecuted and martyred. Why did that work? How did that work? Did they preach a message that was really popular and easy to accept? No. They preached a message that's hard. They preached a message of a Savior who calls people to take up their cross and follow him. They preached a message that said, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. They told you to forgive those who wrong you and to pray for your enemies. They preached a message that we cannot be good enough on our own, but that we need the grace of God through his son who came into the world and died and rose. How does that message sell? The passage tells us how. And it's part of what the world does not get about Christianity. It's because of the Spirit and the Spirit's witness. Again, you look at the disciples, this ragtag group of misfits. If they had been left to their own devices, do you really think that they were capable of starting a movement that almost 2,000 years later has almost 2 billion followers worldwide? No. It's because they were endowed and empowered with the Spirit who bore witness in them and through them. On the eve of going to the cross, Jesus is not saying, well, I've done all I can do. You guys figure it out. Good luck. Christianity revolves around the gospel. But the person who has faith in the gospel has the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And as I said a moment ago, that is a major part of what the world does not understand about Christianity. But sadly, it's also what far too many Christians do not understand about Christianity. That we live, believe, pray, grow, and serve in the power of the Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 8, the same farewell speech that we're in this morning, Jesus will say of the Holy Spirit, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit brings conviction. Once again, that's a legal idea. We're convicted. The charges are brought against us for our own sins. The Spirit reveals to us our own sin in the light of God's righteousness. Without that, we would not recognize our own sin. Why would we? How could we? We're sinful. How do sinful people recognize their own sin and need for grace apart from the conviction of the Spirit? In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. The Spirit convicts of sin, and the Spirit also bears witness to Christ. But the process requires the gospel message. As Romans 10.17 says, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It is imperative that the gospel be communicated. This happens in the church, but it also happens in personal conversation and through reading the Bible. The gospel is communicated. The Spirit bears witness in cooperation with the witness of the one communicating the message. And again, that's what the world does not understand. 
Because that's not how other religions operate or believe. Most religions are actually pretty mechanical. They rely on a person's own goodness. They have their morality, and you need to tip the scale in your favor. You live according to the values of the religion and live as a good person, and you're part of that faith. Live as a good person, and either you'll be rewarded in heaven, or you'll be rewarded by a better reincarnated life. But it ultimately revolves around you and your goodness. Mechanical. Do this, and this is what you'll produce. But that's not how Christianity works. Christianity is not mechanical, it's spiritual. Christianity is not about following a bunch of rules. Too often that's what we make it out to be, but it's not that. Christianity is acknowledging that you actually can't follow all the rules, but you look to someone who has. We are sinful, but Jesus is righteous. And so there's nothing that we do by our own morality or goodness that tips the scale in our favor. Rather, it's believing in Jesus and trusting in the righteousness that he offers. And that becomes the basis of our own righteousness before God. And God gives new spiritual life. And the Lord Jesus says that this new spiritual life is something that a Christian must have. It's non-negotiable. We preached on this passage a little over two years ago. But just as a reminder, in John chapter 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's heard of Jesus and he's intrigued. John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus will respond with confusion. He'll ask how a person can be born a second time. But the rebirth of which Jesus is speaking is a spiritual rebirth. To be a Christian is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ... And God gives spiritual rebirth to everyone who believes in the gospel. How do you know if that's you? How do you know if you've been born again? Here are some things to consider. And the list of questions I'm about to give is by no means exhaustive or authoritative. Because I'm saying them. But I think that these questions are helpful to ask yourself... If you've been born again in Christ through the Spirit. Now, when I said the questions aren't authoritative, they are based in the Bible, and it is God's Word that has authority. And it's because of that I think that these things are worth asking ourselves. So the first question. Has the Spirit convicted you of your own sin and your need for salvation in Christ? If your answer to that question is no, I think it's hard to be a Christian. Because that's really the basis of what Christianity is. Second question. Has the Spirit convicted you of specific areas of sin in your life and your need to repent and turn away from them? This goes back to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is gracious. But because we are spirit-indwelled believers, the Spirit convicts us of sin. True faith results in a life that is changed. It's not that we're earning God's forgiveness. He gives that freely. But for the person who's truly recognized and internalized that, your life can't be the same. Again, that's not to say that you're perfect, but that God is working. I was thinking about this. I think I said this comment to a couple people this morning. I said it to Josh, I know. You know, with Robbie, he turned 11 weeks old yesterday. And anybody who has kids, I'm sure, knows this. But it's just interesting that even in someone so young, he gets to a point where some things he did when he was a newborn, he doesn't do anymore. And you think, okay, I guess he's never going to do that again because he's growing. Um, And it's a process. And that's how the spiritual life is as well. It's a process. But there's growth along the way. God is working through us, through the Spirit. Third question. Is the Spirit bearing fruit in your life? Now, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We've preached on that passage before. Just to point this out again, it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit produces in a believer. Fourth question. Does the glory of God become more precious and beautiful to you in your life? Do you love God's glory and love the fact that we have a glorious God? 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, that list of questions is not exhaustive. But I think those are some things to consider that are helpful and edifying. So let's take all of that together. We have the witness of the Spirit. We have the witness of the disciples. We've talked about how the reason why the disciples were able to start something that became this worldwide movement that has lasted millennia is because they were spirit-filled people preaching the message of Christ in the power of the Spirit. But we close by talking about our own witness because we too are witnesses of Christ. No, we didn't personally see Jesus on the cross. We didn't personally hear his teaching. We didn't see the empty tomb. We didn't see the risen Lord. But we are witnesses of Christ nonetheless. As Jesus empowered the disciples to minister in the church that he started, the work continues in this church today through his followers continuing to bear witness to Christ. And as it was for his disciples, we too have not been left to do it alone. We, too, have the Spirit bearing witness in us so that we can be witnesses to Christ in the world. Again, that is the mission of Christ in the world. His disciples making disciples. People who know Jesus making Jesus known. And that's my challenge for myself and for this church this year. That we have a community around us and communities around us 
where there are people who don't know Jesus and who don't know the good news of the gospel. So my very last thought is on what it can look like to be a witness for Christ. And briefly, I will give five examples, and this is brief. And once again, basically any list I ever give that's not directly from the Bible, don't take it to be exhaustive. But what it can look like to be a witness for Christ. First, as faith comes through hearing, being a witness for Christ calls us to be proclaimers of the word. That doesn't mean you need to preach a 35-minute sermon, but to be able to communicate the gospel. That's not only something that pastors do. That's something that all of us can do to share the good news with others. Second, we're called to be faithful witnesses in how we live. We do, we do that by living lives that shine the light of Christ in a dark world. And we are so taken and enamored by this glorious and wonderful God of the universe and living for him that that loveliness in our lives should be apparent to others. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not say to put on, a, put on a show, but to be authentic. While it matters how we live, thirdly, we also witness through how God has worked in our own lives. The transformation of the human soul because of the gospel is a powerful witness to others. Our testimony, what God has done in our life, how the Lord has worked in us. Again, that impacts people. Because if you're a person who's walking with the Lord, who has a relationship with the Lord, who's had a life that's been changed by the Lord, you still remember how maybe you once were. And what God has done in your life is powerful. Fourth, we are witnesses through our love for people. That's true in the church. Jesus said in John 13, 35, still in the same speech on the eve of the cross that we're in today, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we are also to have love for people outside of the church. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Fifth and final, we must be relational. It's making time for people, inviting people over, inviting people into our lives, being a friend, being there for people. Making new friends. Being relational. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. But not just so that we can know something that is true and have that information of the gospel for our own benefit. The gospel is not meant to be a secret. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. To believe in him and to follow him. But then to serve him by going into the world and sharing the good news with others. It is at the very heart of the Christian life. And again, it's my goal for our church this year.
It's not always easy. And our society has trained us not to talk about our faith, not to talk about Jesus, to keep faith at arm's length. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. It's not always easy. But this year, I invite you to join me in taking a journey in our community, in our families, in our workplaces, of participating more fully in Christ's mission of being disciples who make disciples. Some of you might think, well, I'm old. Well, you're still here. And you're here for a purpose, to serve the Lord, to the glory of God, for the sake of people's salvation in Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Us being witnesses who bear witness to Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again, we pray for that for this year, Lord, that we would shine your light, that we would be transformed, and in that, that we would transform a community. In Jesus' name, amen.